It is our delight to uh, look at Psalm 19 this morning. Uh, we are going to be thrust into uh, the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1, and Psalm 19 speaks about creation. Uh, Genesis is also uh, God's revelation to us about origin and about covenant, two very important themes in the scriptures. And so uh, Psalm 19 addresses God's law, God's testimony. And we wanted to think on this passage before launching into Genesis. Before we launch into our passage this morning, let's pray together. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. And as we listen, we realize that our listening is an act of worship. And so it is our delight to take up the scriptures and to read and to see the truths enumerated on their pages such that you are given glory and honor and power. And so great God be glorified, we pray this morning in Jesus name. Amen. Let me begin by reading a quote. This quote's from Matthew Barrett. There's a great series of books uh, that Zondervan Publisher puts out on the solas of the Reformation. And Matthew Barrett writes the one on God's word. Here is how he begins the second section of his book. He says this, If God had never revealed himself, what would your life look like? Can you even begin to imagine what your world would be like if you possessed no word from God? You would have no way to know who he is or what he has done. You would have no way to know who you are and who he wants you to be. As a sinner, you would be spiritually lost, deaf, and blind. Apart from a word from God, you would have no salvation, no hope, and no relationship with your creator and redeemer, end quote. Friends, without divine speech from our triune God, we are helpless, we are hopeless, and we are directionless. This week, my thoughts have gone to an account back in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 18, where the prophets of Baal and Elijah are having a showdown on Mount Carmel. The contest is there to show whose God is real. Is it Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Or is it Baal? So the contest is set up. The same rules are applied to both parties. Both parties need to get a bull. They need to slaughter it. They need to put it upon an altar. And they need to cry out to their God to consume this bull, uh, this bull with fire. And so the prophets of Baal, they grab their bull, they slaughter this bull, they put it upon their altar, and what we read in 1 Kings 18 is that they cry out for fire to come down. They limp around the altar, they cut themselves, Elijah is mocking them because it goes on for some time, they rave on and on and on and there is no fire. Actually, the refrain of the text in verses 26 and 29 is the same. It says, but there was no voice and no one answered. This is a picture of helplessness and hopelessness. No one is answering. Baal is not there 
He has no voice, for he does not exist. He is silent. That is the conclusion to this half of the contest. But then Elijah slaughters his bull and puts his bull upon the altar. He takes 12 jugs of water and he pours it all over the offering. And Elijah prays to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He prays to the triune God, Yahweh, the Christian God. And what happens? Fire falls from heaven and does not only consume the offering and the wood, but it also consumes the rocks that make up the altar and the dust all around. It licks up the water. And the undeniable conclusion to this contest is that the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob, the Christian God, is there and he is not silent. This God speaks. This God acts. And our God does not make himself known to us in response to our pleadings and our petitions. No, God initiates in his revelation. He makes himself known to us on his own terms and by his own will. We even see that in 1 Kings chapter 18. For as the prophet Elijah is Praying to God, he admits in his prayer, I have done all these things at your word, O God. God initiates this revelation. One eminent theologian, Herman Bavinck, rightly notes, We cannot credit a knowledge of God to ourselves, to our own discovery, to our own investigation, to our own reflection. If it were not given to us by an act of free and unobliged favor, there would be no possibility that we could ever achieve it by an exertion of our own efforts. God initiates to and, and speaks to his people. He reaches out to his image bearers and speaks. And the purpose of this revelation, as we look at scripture, the purpose of this revelation is God's glorification. It is that we might know Him and love Him and glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Friends, this is a praiseworthy reality. It ought to stir up within us praise and thanksgiving as we think about the reality that God has reached out, God has spoken to His image bearers. And this praise is what characterizes David's psalm in Psalm 19. As King David contemplates the God who is not silent, David cannot keep silent about this reality. Praise bursts forth from the pen of David as he considers this resounding truth. Here's the truth that cries out throughout this psalm. Our God speaks. He is not silent. So if you would take your copy of the scriptures and see this truth writ on 14 verses, uh, I would encourage you to follow along. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, 
which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true, and they are righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned in keeping them. There is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. But the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This psalm is divided into three parts. As we've read through it, you probably saw them. Verses 1 to 6, God speaks to us through his works. Verses 7 to 11, God speaks to us through his words. And verses 12 to 14, God's speech elicits a response from us. Let's take them each in turn. Number one, God speaks to us through his works. In these first six verses of Psalm 19, the created order is described as a preacher proclaiming that there is a creator, proclaiming God's wisdom and power, his greatness and his goodness. And God's works speak in four different ways in these six verses. Let's let's take a look at each of them. First, the works of God speak gloriously. Verse 1, look down with me at verse 1. David points our gaze up to the heavens and he tells us that a look upward is all that we need in order to witness the glory of God. God's glory is displayed in what he has made, the heavens, the sky, all created things. If we want to see the magnificence, the worth, the loveliness, the grandeur of God's perfections in creation, all we need to do is look around us, to look up to the heavens. Summer between grade 10 and 11, I went to Honduras. I was in Honduras with my youth group, and we were there to build a school. It's pretty warm in Honduras, especially in our summertime. And uh, we went down there, we would fill wheelbarrows full of sand because we needed to filter this sand to get it nice and fine so that we could make cement for this school. And the sand was at the bottom of the hill and the school was being built on the top of the hill and the cement was being mixed on the top of the hill. So we would take wheelbarrows full of sand and we would lug them up this big hill. And so you can imagine when the day was over after working in the heat of the sun for so long, we would go back to our hotel in an accompanying town and we would crash into our beds after dinner. We were exhausted. Well, one night we decided, okay, we're in Honduras. We should probably check out this town that we're living in. We haven't seen much because we've been working so hard. So one night we decided we're not going to crash into bed. We're going to go out and we're just, we're going to see the town. So we started walking the streets. We were just trying to find something like a snack to eat. And as we walked these streets at night, 
my gaze as a 16 or 17 year old was taken by the immensity of the sky in Honduras. I could see these bright pinprick stars all over the place. It, it was, I'd never seen the stars so vibrant. The, 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 the pixelation was so clear, was so lovely. There was limited light pollution down where we were. And so the sky just looked immense. It looked gorgeous. I couldn't believe it. Even as a 16 and 17 year old who was so self-absorbed and interested in my own deal, my gaze was directed at the sky. That is the glory of God on display, proclaiming his wisdom and power, his greatness and goodness. We have a creator who is wise and powerful and great and good. Kids, when I was 11 or 12, I don't know how old some of you are who are watching, but when I was 11 and 12, my parents would take me in, they put me in the back seat of the car and we would drive to Jasper. We lived in Hinton, about 45 minutes away. And as we made that 45-minute drive to Jasper and then drove around in Jasper, once again, as an 11 or 12-year-old, I was awestruck by the amount of wildlife we would see in a 45-minute drive, by the, by the rugged, jagged peaks of the Rocky Mountains. I was taken by the rivers that were everywhere, the lakes that were everywhere, the forests that were, that, that were so numerous. I, I was 11 or 12, and I was taken by all of this scenery. Kids, that is the glory of God on display, proclaiming that we have a wise God, Proclaiming that we have a powerful God, a great God, a good God. I want everyone to think just for a second about great vistas that they have seen in their lifetime. Maybe you've been to Hawaii or you've been to the Grand Canyon or you've seen great the, the tropics in Southeast Asia and you have been blown away by their magnificence. And maybe you've never traveled before and you've just seen the greatness of the Great Lakes. You have seen the wonder of Niagara Falls. Friends, all of these things are there to display the glory of God. They proclaim his wisdom, his power, his greatness and his goodness. I think John Calvin said it right when he said, creation is the theater of God's glory. The works of God speak gloriously. Second, the works of God speak perpetually. Do you see that in verse 2? They don't only speak gloriously, they speak perpetually. God's works never stop speaking. Every second of every day, week after week, year after year, the works of God speak about his wisdom and power, his greatness and his goodness. Picture a bubbling spring. The spring is just shooting up water and, and it continues to gush forth water constantly. Day to day, gushes forth, pours forth speech. Think about Niagara Falls and the volume of water that is constantly pouring over the edge of the falls. Constant. Day by day, this volume of water keeps going over. Day to day, pours forth speech. Night to night, reveals knowledge. Both of these verbs in verse 2 are future verbs. Maybe they're like, I don't, I don't really care. But they're future verbs and it matters because it means that day and night shall continue to preach about God. They didn't just preach in the past. 
They're not just preaching something now and they will soon stop. They will continue to preach about the glory of God. The works of God never stop speaking. The sun can be in the sky and the works of God are speaking. The moon and the stars can be in the sky. The works of God are still speaking. And so the works of God speak gloriously. They speak perpetually, verse 2. Third, the works of God speak universally. Do you see it in verses 3 and 4? It, verse three, there's a, the, between verse 3 and 4, there's a bit of a paradox. In verse 3, we see that creation doesn't have a physical voice box. There are no speech. There's no speech in creation. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. Yet in verse 4, The voice of creation goes out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So for not having a voice, the psalmist is saying creation speaks loudly. The nonverbal communication of of creation is absolutely deafening. Even though it does not have a language of its own. Even though it does not have a voice box of its own. You can't stop from hearing creation. All the corners of the earth hear this testimony day after day after day. That's why this category of God's divine speech is referred to as general or natural revelation. It's called general because it is revealed generally to all people everywhere in all places. It's called natural because it is revealed naturally through nature and ordinary means. Some people call this the book of nature. Everyone is a copy of nature's book. Saharan tribes, Arctic nomads, island dwellers, the tropics, those who find themselves in the prairies, every continent, every country, tribe and nation, all of them have a copy of this book of nature. God speaks perpetually. He speaks universally. Fourth, we see in these opening verses that God does not only speak gloriously, he does not only speak perpetually and universally, but the works of God speak radiantly. If you look at the latter half of verse 4 all the way to the end of verse 6, you'll see that our attention is called to the sun. The sun is radiant. It transmits light and heat. The glorious design of the sun is displayed in its radiant light such that we all know you can't look at the sun. The glorious design of the sun is displayed in its radiant heat. It warms the earth. Nothing is hidden from it. It is a searching light. Everyone knows that. David describes the radiance of This servant of God, the sun, with with two pictures. Do you see them in the text? When the sun rises in the morning, it is like a bridegroom leaving his chamber to claim his bride. I mean, a bridegroom leaving his chamber is probably dressed in his best. He is radiant with joy. He is excited about what the future holds for him. And here is the sun, the servant of God, soaring across the sky in brilliance and beauty, vividly displaying, there is a God I have been designed. Second picture of the sun, the sun is likened to an athlete or a warrior running his course, delighted to use his power and strength, radiant with joy that he gets to do what he was made to do. It's interesting to note here that many religions throughout the centuries have worshipped the sun, but here the sun is a servant. 
The sun is a created orb that, that serves the living God to display glory and honor back to God. That The brilliance of the sun that we can't even look at is there to say there is a maker whose brilliance, whose glory far surpasses this gassy orb in the sky. And so the works of God speak gloriously, they speak perpetually, speak universally and radiantly. God speaks to us through his works. And yet there's a problem, Romans 1 tells us, that we suppress the truth about God the creator. Humans turn away from this evidence and worship the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. We sinners, futile in our thinking and darkened in our hearts, strive against the truth that is plain in creation. Last year, my wife read a popular book on the human body. It's, it's widely acclaimed. It was on a lot of bestseller lists. And as the author describes the human body, he is full of passion. He uses words like astonishing, extraordinary, remarkable. And as you go through the book, you're, you're just struck about the complexity and the beauty of the human body. But all throughout the book, the author refuses to acknowledge that a divine hand has crafted this awe-inspiring reality. He refuses to acknowledge it. Oh yeah, I don't know what happened here, but it's great, isn't it? It works in our favor. All throughout, he suppresses the truth. This body, the body that you inhabit, is screaming out, there is a creator. But we suppress the truth. And so what we find out from this is that the works of God in creation are enough to condemn us. We stand condemned because we have enough to see that there is a God who is wise and powerful and great and good. The works of creation are enough to condemn us, but they are not enough to redeem us. We can't go up to a tree and pick a leaf off the tree and read about the gospel of Jesus Christ and repent of our sins and come to him in faith. We can't contemplate the sun in the sky enough and use our rationality to rationalize our way to God. We need something more. As a great theologian, Gerhardus Voss, has said, nature cannot unlock the door of redemption. We need God to reveal himself not only as creator, but as redeemer. And such a revelation comes in scripture. That is where David goes in the next five verses, verses 7 to 11. God speaks to us through his works. First six verses of Psalm 19, second Five verses, the second section, 7 to 11, God speaks to us through his word. This is what we call special or supernatural revelation. God has supernaturally acted and spoken. These deeds and words have been recorded in scripture that we might know salvation. God speaks specifically about who he is and all that he has done to save sinners. And David cannot keep himself from proclaiming the excellencies of God's word as he thinks about the law of God, these testimonies of God, these precepts of God. And so he first starts in, in verse 7 and 8 and 9 by describing the characteristics and benefits of God's word. 
I just want to go through them one by one because they're so beautiful. Number one, the law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. The law or the doctrines of God, they're perfect. They're without blemish. There's no defects in them. They're flawless. They, they, they are whole. They revive the soul. Think about a motionless body on the ground. The heart is stopped. There are no vital signs. The person is in critical condition. They need to be revived. Well, an AED is on the scene. And the AED is hooked up to the lifeless body. The button is pressed. The AED zaps the heart. And the person is given life. Scripture revives the soul. It is, a, it is our spiritual AED. It revives the soul. It nourishes the soul. Deuteronomy 8 verse 3, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Praise God for his perfect word that revives the soul. The second statement, second half of verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Testimonies of the Lord are sure. They are steadfast. They are a solid foundation. They are firm. They are stable. They are reliable. They can be depended upon. They make wise the simple. I was listening to a podcast recently. Uh, Two sort of famous pastors, well-known pastors were on the podcast. One was interviewing the other. And uh, the guy who was being interviewed talked about how slow he is at reading books. He doesn't read very many books because he is a very slow reader. People would be surprised at that because this man is so intelligent. He's so, so uh, learned. But he says, I, I don't read many because I can't read very fast. And he, he, he gives an account of a time where he was at a conference with a bunch of heavy hitter preachers. And these guys have read the world around. They've read everything under the sun, it seems. And they were having a discussion about a certain topic. And they were going back and forth about this topic. Well, you know, so-and-so in their new big tome or their three-volume set said this about this subject. And yeah, I don't know about that because this other person that I read on the subject said this. And they're going back and forth about all these books they've read on this topic. And this pastor sitting there thinking, I should probably just go to bed because I have nothing to contribute because I've never read a book on this subject ever before. And to his horror, one of the other pastors turned to him and said, hey, what do you, what do you think about the topic that we've been discussing? And he goes, oh, great. Now everyone's going to find out that I haven't read a single book about it. Well, he thinks for a second and he lets out one Bible verse. He says, this is what I think about the topic. And he gives them this verse, and the conversation was over. People, well, I didn't even think about that. I never thought about it that way. Wow, God's, God's word, and just a simple verse, just dissipated the debate and the discussion. Friends, God's word is sure. It makes wise the simple. You don't need to be well-read in countless volumes to be wise. Wisdom is found in one volume. Psalm 119 verse 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditations. Praise God for his sure word that makes wise the simple. The third statement found at the beginning of verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. 
precepts. The word precepts has an authoritative connotation to it. God's precepts are right. They are straight. They are trustworthy. They set you on a trustworthy course. So many people would say that submitting to the word of God, submitting to precepts, something so eminent and authoritative, wow, that sounds like bondage and slavery to me. They would say something to the effect of true freedom is found in living any way that you want, not in, 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 in relationship to these authoritative precepts. Well, as we read scripture and as we see its wisdom and as its wisdom filters into our life and into our practice, we see that true freedom is living the way you were created to live. The precepts of the Lord are right. They set a straight course for men and women and boys and girls. And this brings joy to the heart because there is no joy like living the way we were created to live. Psalm 119 verse 162. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. Praise God for his right word that rejoices the heart. Statement number four, statement number four, end of verse eight. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. God's commandments are pure. They are clean. They are without error. There is no sin in them. There is no injustice in them. They enlighten the eyes. Think about a group of hikers in a cave. No flashlight whatsoever. They can't see a thing. They're bumping their shins on rocks. They're smacking their heads off the ceiling at low points. Ah, one of them stumbles upon a flashlight. He turns it on. What happens? Their eyes are enlightened. They can see all of a sudden everything that they've been bumping into makes sense. And they can see their way out. Think about someone hiking in the fog. I don't know if you've had much experience hiking mountains before, but when it gets foggy on a mountain, you're supposed to sit down. It's how hikers kill themselves uh, when they keep hiking in the fog. You can't see anything. You walk off a cliff. You walk into a ravine. Something like that happens. It's like a hiker walking in the fog, and they're sitting there. They can't go on. There's nowhere to go because there's danger ahead if they keep walking. And the sun pierces through the fog and lights up their path. The word of God is pure. It enlightens the eyes. The fog lifts. The eyes are enlightened. Psalm 119, 105. Your word, O Lord, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Praise God for his pure word that lightens our eyes. Statement number five, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The instructions of God, which are meant to lead us to fear and reverence God, are clean. They are pure. They are uncorrupt. They will not decay. They will not blemish. And they endure forever. Think with me, friends, for a second about all the things that don't endure forever. Think about the books and the instructions and the opinions that were fads, that were momentary, fleeting ideas that we latched onto and thought, this is going to revolutionize the world. Where is the Atkins diet? It's gone. Where is the book, The Prayer of Jabez? Oh, and all of its soft prosperity. It, it, wasn't it a best-selling? Didn't it change people's lives? It's it, It's gone. The word of the Lord endures forever. 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25. 
All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flowers fail, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Praise God for his clean word that endures forever. Look at that last statement. End of verse 9. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The rules or judgments or decrees of God are true. They are righteous altogether. In other words, there is no flaw or defect in the rules of the Lord. If anyone identifies a problem with Scripture, we can be sure that the problem is not the fault of the Bible. The problem is the fault of the reader. The Bible is true. It leads us in the way of righteousness. Psalm 119, 160. The sum of your words, O God, is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Praise God for his word that is true and completely righteous. Friends, as we look at these six statements, the application that follows from these verses is obvious. Take up and read. Have your soul revived. Be wise. You, you, you who are simple, be wise. Fear the Lord. This, 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 this book endures forever. It enlightens the eyes. It rejoices the heart. Take up and read. God has disclosed himself in his word. That's the application that follows. And the psalmist, so amazed by all that God's word is in character and in benefit, can't stop at describing God's word. And so in the next two verses, he doesn't only describe the character and benefits of God's word in verses 7 to 9, but he describes the desirableness of God's word. Look at the longing and the yearning that the psalmist has for the word of God after speaking about its characteristics and benefits. It is, more to, it is to be desired more than gold. No riches compare to this word. You can pursue all the gold you want. You can empty your jewelry box and try to be satisfied in all these things. There is nothing more desirable than, 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 than the word. It is more to be desired than gold. It is sweeter than honey. Remember with me for a second that refined sugar is a recent invention. You throw a bunch of chemicals together and you get refined sugar. Back in this day, what was the sweetest of all? It was honey. Honey was so sweet to the taste, it, perhaps even a rare taste. And here it is being compared to the scriptures. Oh, do you want something that satisfies the taste buzz, that excites them, that stirs them up? Go to the word. It's sweeter than honey. Verse 11, it is a warning, the scriptures, that brings a reward. Warnings keep us from certain danger, from disaster, from harm, even from death. We should appreciate warnings. They steer us away from disaster. They, they lead us into the way of delight. There is a great reward in heeding the warnings of Scripture. Scripture keeps us safe. You want to know what real safety is? Look at Scripture. Scripture keeps us safe. There is a reward. So he describes the desirableness of God's word. And all five of these verses, we must point out, are actually meant to point us to a greater reality. This section of Psalm 19, the whole psalm even, is meant to point us to Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
Jesus is the very focal point of Scripture. Every verse of Scripture is meant to point us to the Redeemer, the Savior, Jesus Christ. He is anticipated in the Old Testament. He is realized in the New Testament. Promises are made about Him in the Old Testament. Promises are kept in the New. The chief aim of God's Word is for sinners to know God in Christ. Apart from God's Word, no sinner can know Jesus Christ. And so God comes down to us in Christ to be our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We do not rise up to Him by our own merit, by our own wisdom, by our own strength. God's Word is redemptive in nature. It ultimately leads us to Jesus Christ who is both Creator and Redeemer. That is what this text is pointing at. Do you want your soul revived? Look to the word who became flesh. It anticipates him. Do you want your eyes enlightened? Look to the one who came and shed his blood for you such that the hardness of your heart and the blindness, the scales upon your eyes could be removed. He is the word made flesh and all scripture points to him. He is Jesus Christ and God has spoken through his son. This way of salvation cannot be found out by looking at a leaf from a tree. Cannot be found out by looking at the starry sky at night. Comes because God in his grace has made himself known. He has spoken. He has spoken through his son. The words of the psalmist point us to the word made flesh. God speaks to us in his works. And they are enough to condemn us. God speaks to us with his words, and in his word, and they are sufficient, all sufficient to save us. As we move to the last three verses of this psalm, verses 12 to 14, we see that God has another call upon our lives. God calls us to respond to all that we have just seen in prayerful humility. God calls us to respond in prayerful humility. See, any meaningful interaction with the Word of God shows that Hebrews 4, 12 to 13 is absolutely true. God's Word is sharper than a double-edged sword. It pierces the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, cuts deeply. And the response that we are to make as we come into contact with God's Word, with God's revelation is one of prayerful humility. Do you see it in the last three verses? There are two postures that this prayerful humility takes. The first is this, one of confession, a posture of confession. The psalmist has seen the immensity and power and wisdom of God in creation. This humbles him. The psalmist has meditated on the perfect, sure, right, clean, pure, true word of God. This humbles him. And the Holy Spirit at work with the word of God in this man's life humbles him. The psalmist sees himself for who he truly is in light of God's revelation. An encounter with God is an absolute reality check. It is a mirror reflecting back to us what we really are. It is a measuring stick showing us that we don't actually measure up. And so for the unbeliever... As the measuring stick of God's word and God's immensity and creation is held up to him, 
The unbeliever sees that they suppress the truth of God, that they live for self and ignore God. They worship creation rather than the creator. They're not reconciled to this immense, majestic God who has made them. And then the believer sees that they have indwelling sin, that they must confess. Both the believer and unbeliever are forced to their knees as they come to grips with the God who has spoken, the God who is not silent, and they cry out, O Lord, there is sin in my life, both known and unknown. Deliver me from it. You who are holy, deliver me from it. That's the first posture, one of confession, verse 12 and 13. The second posture of prayerful humility that we see is one of consecration. The psalm has been all about the divine speech of God, the God who speaks. Now the psalmist reflects on the speech of God, or now the psalmist reflects on his own speech. Lord, you have created the sun to speak about your brilliance. Lord, you have created the starry sky to speak about your immensity and your majesty. Lord, you have created both day and night to glorify you. And so now, may the words of my mouth, this creation's mouth, and the meditation of this creation's heart be pleasing to you. All of life was made for you. Let this life glorify you. The heavens were made to praise you. The night and day were made to praise you. May I praise you. Friends, our God speaks. He is not silent. This calls for our attention. It calls for our praise. It calls for our confession. And it calls for us to consecrate all of ourselves, our words and the very meditations of our heart, To the God who has spoken, the God who reigns, the God who is glorious, and the God who has reached out in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save sinners from certain judgment. This is the God that we worship. He is the God of Genesis. And as we behold him in Genesis, we will see once again his wisdom and his greatness, his power and his sovereignty And all of his goodness in reconciling a sinful human race to himself. Our God speaks. He is not silent. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. O Lord, we give you honor and glory and power. We ascribe it to your name as we think about all of your excellencies. Lord, we are thankful that you have spoken so wonderfully in your works. Thank you, O Lord, for speaking in your word, for convicting us of our sin, and for leading us in the way of salvation to look at the Lord Jesus Christ with the eyes of faith and with hearts repentant as we consider the great ways that we have transgressed against your holy law. Lord, we do pray the prayer that we started with. Let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. This we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.